0: and welcome to Everything But The Building, a podcast about the people, places, and history behind the profession of landscape architecture. I'm your host, Stacey Brucktrup. What goes into the process of designing a project with bike ped components? Today, I'm introducing what I like to call a crossover episode. This is where I get to dive a little bit deeper into other allied professions and organizations that landscape architects work with on a regular basis. Jeremy Charzin is with me today to introduce APBP and answer that question about projects with bike components. So first thing, could you introduce yourself for me?
1: Sure. My name is Jeremy Charzin, and I'm the Multimodal Design Practice Lead for Tool Design Group.
0: Awesome. And what type of work do you do at Tool Design?
1: So... My position is sort of a senior level engineering position and you know tw- 20 years of my experience has been in the, the engineering realm so um, very focused on getting projects built and, and on the ground, but also starting from the ground up and sort of envisioning what a street could look like and then working through all the permitting and design details to identify how that can be built and work the way it was originally intended. And all of all of the work we do at Tool Design Group is focused on making communities more walkable, bikeable, transit accessible, and um, just comfortable spaces and places for people to live and work.
0: Okay. So the multimodal design and practice lead position, how does that specifically play into the projects that you work
1: on? Yeah, so all of our practice lead positions are sort of a step above a senior tier person in that respective uh, area of interest. So we have our, our practice lead for landscape architecture, our practice lead for engineering, etc. And so my focus is to both work on important projects that the company is working on across the the continent but to also work on developing best practices and making sure that that information is relayed throughout all of our staff so particularly in the the realm of bicycle and pedestrian street construction there's been a lot of innovation over the last few years and so the state of best practice continues to evolve and at tool design we're often on the cutting edge of developing a lot of those best practices so currently I'm working on writing the Ashto bike guide or the update to the Ashto bike guide. We've worked on a lot of NCHRP research and design guidance projects so Those are the types of projects that are identifying best practices, but unless somebody sits down and reads it all and they're relying on what they heard five years ago, well, they're applying outdated information. So a big part of this is making sure all of the staff at our company are doing things uniformly across the continent and that they have the tools that they need to have informed conversations with both their clients, other agencies that might be issuing permits or approving designs, and also talking with the public and having all the information they need to make informed decisions and provide appropriate guidance when when speaking with the public.
0: Cool. And is there a government agency that you look to in your regulation writing or In the guidance that you create.
1: So a lot of the guidance comes from the federal government, so Federal Highway or FHWA. They tend to be a resource or an agency that uh, all the states across the country turn to, and so if FHWA says it's okay, that's usually a good starting point for recommending a treatment with a state agency or some other local agency and we've done a lot of work with federal highway writing these sorts of bicycle and pedestrian recommendations and helping people who have traditionally been designing streets for driving helping them understand the natural flexibility they have in the existing design guidance that's out there um, the engineering realm particularly is very focused on design standards and I think design quote standards are really important if we're designing buildings, but everything related to street design and, and that sort of public realm is really more of a guideline and not a standard. And the, the way I think of it is we need standards so that buildings don't fall down if, if you don't have standards, that's, that's going to be the, the case. But guidelines are really important in the public realm on the street because there's such nuanced design. There's so much local context that needs to be factored into different decisions that a single standard cannot be applied uniformly in all contexts. So really helping engineers to understand that inherent flexibility that they have and allowing them to feel comfortable that their design and their justification for that design is sound. So FHWA is definitely one of those government agencies. Ashdo is sort of a quasi-government agency. I think they're technically an organization, but all of FHWA, FHWA's guides point to Ashto design standards, and so um, the Ashto bike guide similarly falls under that that purview. And Ashto is comprised of all of their committees are comprised of agency officials from all across the country. So they're bringing their local knowledge into a much larger national national conversation to ensure that the guidance that comes out of those documents sort of factors that um, that context into design recommendations and decisions. Okay, and then great. certainly, certainly, NACDO is another organization that we um, turn to for particularly bicycle, pedestrian, and access to transit guidance. And because they're focused mostly on very urban areas, that it's a sort of grouping of large cities and um, provides guidance for very dense areas that we tend to find that that guidance is very helpful when talking with city officials or uh, places where we have lots of competing interests in the street environment.
0: Okay, great. And just in case some of the listeners don't know, can you explain the full name behind each of those acronyms? FHWA, Ashto, and then the, the third one?
1: Sure. So FHWA is the Federal Highway Administration. AASHTO is the American Association of State Highway Transportation Officials, so very transportation focused. And then NACTO is the National Association of City Transportation Officials, so as I said, very geared towards city officials and the information that they need to um, help them in their specific contexts.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you for c- clarifying those, because I didn't even know the last one either, so <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that does help. So, in addition to all of the other agencies with a bunch of different letters involved, could you... Give us an overview of what is apbp
1: sure so apbp is the association of pedestrian and bicycle professionals and i'm on the the board of directors for apbp and it's really a professional organization to help share information and Really focus on the issues of walkable, bikeable places. And so that naturally then also leads to public spaces and making places that people actually want to be in and that they feel comfortable being in and safe being in and that it's just generally an enjoyable space to be in. So um, APBP is really focused on that piece of of street development to uh, making spaces more more walkable and bikeable and so we, sh- we share a lot of expertise amongst all of our members whether that's through conferences or webinars or just using the interface they have on their website to ask questions and sort of share precedence so our our Uh, electronic membership community sort of becomes a really great resource for people to turn to when they have questions or they're struggling with a design decision and they just want to see, hey, has anybody run into this before? And what what has been your experience with this treatment or this scenario? So just a, a lot of really great information sharing, and especially given the the idea that a lot of the types of projects that people are focused on when doing walkable, bikeable spaces are usually contentious or dealing with constrained environments. It's always helpful to have that resource to turn to and get other people's opinions and see what works and what doesn't so that we can continue to learn and adapt. It's just great information sharing.
0: Awesome. So then how did you get involved with APBP?
1: So for the first 15 years of my career, I was really focused on traditional highway design. It was it was really odd cuz I didn't own a car for I think the first 35 years of my life and yet I was designing streets for people who weren't me, people that were were driving and so When I came to Tool Design Group, I was looking for a professional organization that would meet those needs. So I had previously been very, and and I'm still very active with the American Society of Civil Engineers or ASCE. And I, I tend to find that the resources that I get out of APBP are much more applicable to the type of work that I'm doing, and really aid in those conversations that I need to have with clients, et cetera. So that's really why I got involved, was because it's an organization really geared towards the type of work that that I was doing, and I wanted to find a new way of networking with like-minded folks, and I can't think of a, a larger group of people than APBP that that are those like-minded folks.
0: APBP doesn't actually like make the laws or recommendations, but they're, I think you said they're a resource for people who are trying to do this type of design work. If somebody wanted to get more involved with actually making that policy, do you know what the steps would be involved with that? Would they need to go to the FHWA or Ashto? or can they do advocacy at their local level or state level? How, how would that
1: happen? So I think that there are many avenues that people can take to affect the guidance that comes out of the, these variety of agencies. So certainly working for Federal Highway is one way to uh, inform what ends up in their guidance. Similarly, me working for a consulting firm i have great opportunities to work on projects that are that are offered by these various agencies so we get those opportunities to develop not only design guidance but trainings and all of those types of things that agencies are looking for to not only to develop the information but also to disseminate it being a member of APBP we do we do actively work with people that are on Capitol Hill and help to inform policy at the, the national level like that. So that that's another way of just being involved in APBP and getting involved in some of our committees and and you're right that APBP doesn't create laws but we do provide some design guidance for, people in the the walking and biking realm. So for example, we've developed, uh, APBP has uh, bike parking guidance that is often adopted by state or local agencies to help them understand how much bike parking is needed at a particular development based on its size, et cetera. So in the same way that there's trip generation rates for how many cars are gonna go to this Walmart, Similarly, based on the size of this development, uh, how many bike p- p- parking spaces should there be? And that was a document that was developed by APBP and its members through the, our committee structure. So we also have various committees that serve multiple purposes, whether it's policy or webinar development, et cetera. Back to your original question certainly, the advocates, um, if you're in the advocacy realm or a member of a uh, An advocacy group. They have great ways of getting involved in helping to shape policies, particularly at the local level. And then I think getting involved when there's opportunities for commenting. So when there are federal guidelines released, there's always a formal commenting period. When when ashdo guidance is developed, that is through a committee structure that many DOT employees are a part of or Department of Transportation employees are, are a part of. So if you work at a DOT, you have the opportunity to put your name forward and get on committees that then help to write that guidance. So I feel like regardless of whether you're in the public, private or nonprofit realm, There is some avenue for you to get involved in helping to shape those policies. It's just going to be a little bit different depending on what policy you're trying to affect and what path that particular policy may take to get uh, developed or enacted.
0: That's great. It sounds like there are a lot of avenues if someone wanted to get involved because they're passionate about bike ped. So that's good. I know that you are an engineer by by trade but it sounds like a lot of the work that you do crosses over with t- the work that we do as landscape architects for bike ped projects. Could you explain some of the partnering opportunities that you had with landscape architects, whether that's in your firm or others for some projects?
1: Yeah, and that's certainly something that has evolved over the, the duration of my career that when I was designing streets for cars, The interaction I had with landscape architects was very much after the fact that we would design the street, and then we would say, well, there's that strip. You can put some trees or lights or whatever, and it wasn't (laughs) terribly interactive.
0: That sounds familiar,
1: (laughs) unfortunately. Um, That has very much changed in the last five years of of my career. Um, So Tool Design Group was founded by a landscape architect, Jennifer Tool. And so it's just part of the fabric of our company that our planning group, our engineering group, and our landscape architecture group are completely intertwined to the point where we sit next to one another. We don't have like the engineers all sit by themselves and the landscape architects sit by themselves. Instead, we spread everybody out so that we're constantly hearing the ideas of various people, of various disciplines throughout the the course of our day. And so it has very much affected the way we develop projects as well. So oftentimes it's, our landscape architects or designers who are focused on developing the vision for our projects. And the engineers, particularly in those early stages, are really focused on making sure that it, the ideas that they're coming up with would be constructible or that they're grounded in the realities of some of these design guidelines. And it sort of becomes a cross-pollination of ideas of what would physically work in the space and what is accomplishing the goals of both the public engagement that we may hear or the original project purpose as it was provided to us. So I tend to find that it's our landscape architects that are really creating the initial vision for the project rather than the engineers developing that vision and then the landscape architects coming in and getting to decide what tree goes in that one little spot that you left them. So it's really flipped the design process on its head for me. And I have found it to be a much more rewarding project development process, that it becomes much a, a better learning experience for me and helps me to see opportunities that I may not have seen in the past.
0: That's really interesting that you mention it because I feel like a lot of projects do go the opposite way. Like you mentioned, typically it had been engineers coming in and then saying, you have this three foot space left to put in your trees and your plants and everything else. That's encouraging that you're seeing a shift in that and they can work collaboratively between the different um, disciplines within your group.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, my my colleague, Cindy Zerger, she's uh, one of our landscape architects and she has this concept of path as place that any linear facility should be viewed as a place that will be inviting and that people will want to be in rather than just a space to move people and really applying that principle to any linear project is going to result in a space that's going to be better at meeting the goal of being a person-oriented space or place even though it's still going to serve the purpose of moving them whether they're walking riding their bike using transit or or driving so that, that's just another one of those interactions with landscape architects that has really helped to change the way I think about a project that I would have otherwise viewed as, well, it's it's a bike lane or it's a sidewalk. No, it, it should be a public place and a public space that serves multiple purposes, not just one.
0: I really like that phrase, the path as place. It goes to show that... When you design for multimodal options <laughs> while you are designing, it opens up a lot of different opportunities for the space in itself. It doesn't have to just be focused at a 40 mile an hour viewing range. You can stop. Some users will go at you know 15 miles an hour when they're biking or three when they're walking. And how all of those different users interact with the space is very different looking at it from an engineering standpoint versus a landscape architecture one.
1: Yeah, and I feel like it's that cross-pollination of ideas that really benefits everyone. And it, I hope that it's a relationship that continues to evolve over the years so that as engineering guidance is developed, it's developed in concert with information that we hear from landscape architects and other people that are focused on public spaces and public places and really making sure that that context is sort of factored into the development of design guidance so that it's just part of the natural process that every engineer learns to help them understand the impact of the projects that they're working on.
0: That's a great way to look at it. So when a project comes to your firm and it's going to have bike ped elements what happens um, could you walk me through that type of project process
1: So all of the projects we work on are bicycle pedestrian and transit related so that's that's just all of our projects and it it will definitely vary depending on what the the client's status is sort of where the project is in its life cycle but when we're taking projects from beginning to end uh, like sort of the envisioning what what the space could be or the place could be all the way through construction it starts with a lot of concept design and a lot of public engagement and stakeholder involvement that i i think One of the flaws of the past is that engineers would start developing a project based on what an agency told them, and then you would draw it up in CAD and take it out to the public and say, what do you think about this? And we've found that it's been much more effective to draw absolutely nothing, go out to the public and find out what are your concerns? What have been your interactions on the corridors today? What are your experiences for business owners? What are your business operations? How do you get deliveries? Really getting into the weeds of understanding how a a, a corridor might work today, because in the end, there are certain elements of that that will need to continue to work the way they are or that you need to find solutions to ensure that they can still function. But then you're also going to hear things from the public that might be safety related or operations related that you would never find in a crash report or crash data or safety study that had been done just because you had some traffic traffic counters go out there and observe the space for a couple hours and think that you know how the space actually works, and it's much more effective to hear from the people that are out there every day, and they'll be able to tell you about the close calls that they experience on this corner, and I've almost been hit five times there, that those stories are really important to understanding the problems so that we can work to identify solutions. It's also a really great time to sort of understand what they're looking for in the project and sort of towards the end of this process you can start to break out the aerial and some trace paper and start sketching some things up really rough but really trying to get some feedback in the moment of well what about this would this work for you would this work for you and really develop designs in concert with the public rather than going there after the fact and presenting it to them. So that's the way we like to start a project, is let's get a bunch of ideas out there with the public and develop it, get some feedback, go through a bunch of feedback loops here until we whittle something down to one or two options that really meet that project purpose and need. And we already know through this feedback loop that it is generally agreeable to the public or the stakeholders and that by following that process we're going to be able to advance the design much more easily because there's not going to be more pushback along the way and you're not going to have to go through substantive detailed revisions once you've already put it into CAD that once you've done that work it's it's going to be minor tweaks and revisions to address constructability or some utilities you didn't know were underground and being able to adapt to what you're finding based on the more detailed survey and, and things like that.
0: It sounds like you've gotten the opportunity to do a few charrettes with the work that you've done. I always thought that was more of a landscape architecture thing. Do you have your landscape architects leading that type of process, or is that more on the engineering side?
1: No, it's it's definitely our landscape architects and designers that are often leading those charrette sessions. But we also will have engineers there. Um, I, I, I tend to find that I'm terrible at hand drawing, and the, the landscape architects have been trained professionally at hand drawing. so. They are much faster and much better at communicating ideas in the moment that we're hearing from the public. But it's also great to be present for those discussions and help to be part of that feedback loop. And also, even if you're just a fly on the wall, you're there gaining knowledge about how people are saying they feel about a space or how they feel about a design treatment and that will be really helpful as projects progress so that if at some point along the way some agency official or somebody who's reviewing the plans or even at another public meeting somebody raises some objection to something that was proposed well you'll have been through all these conversations from day one and be able to say well Actually we've heard throughout this process that A, B, and C are all true. And so while I hear what you're saying about this concern throughout the process, we've heard very positive things about what we're what we're showing in this design or with this treatment. And having that information is really, really helpful and having sort of continuity of, staff throughout that project process is also extremely helpful if you're constantly passing a project from one group of staff from charrette development to the engineers and and sort of losing that continuity you're going to miss all of that information and you're going to make design decisions or design changes that you may not be aware had already been discussed numerous times in the past. So that's been been my experience. And I think that landscape architects really provide a whole lot of information in those conversations and helping us to visualize what what a space could be in a way that the public can can understand. One other thing I'll say about this is that Engineers think that when you take a plan to a public meeting, they are under the impression that everybody looking at that plan understands it. And what, (laughs) over the years, what I've come to realize is when most people at a public meeting look at An engineering drawing that you've laid out in front of them, even if you've maybe colored in the sidewalk a a gray and maybe made the road black and put a couple pavement markings down, that they just don't have any way of interpreting what they're seeing and converting it into something that is real world. When they look at a plan, all they want to know is where is my house and. What's happening to my driveway? And they, it, it's going to be very difficult for them to visualize what your two-dimensional plan looks like in reality. Whereas when I, when a landscape architect draws something up in a charrette, not only are they able to do it in a two D quick sketch, but they'll also draw up a quick typical section or even a, a isometric drawing that. When you show something like that to the public they can totally understand what they're seeing and understand how that relates to the space that you're working in and that is a whole lot more valuable than a two-dimensional engineering drawing
0: yeah that's a great way to look at it obviously engineers are important for every single job but it is great to have those landscape architects who can read the engineering plans and translate it for the lay people who can't like you said can't necessarily read a 2D plan.
1: And it's so hard to process because we look at plans all day long. I can look right. at an engineering drawing and see it in three dimensions by looking at a couple spot elevations and most people are not going to be able to do that. And it's hard to flip that switch in your head when it's something you do all the time and just expect or think that anybody else can do that.
0: Right, yeah, and I actually had uh, two years of civil engineering in my background before I switched to landscape architecture, so I feel like I even had that walking into my landscape architecture program that a lot of people don't. In our project, now we have identified the needs of the users through gathering public input and having that charrette and interaction with these people then you've gone through the design stages and identified the best solutions for the project. What are the next steps to making that happen? Going through governance, applying for grants, could you give us a few ideas on that?
1: Sure, so identifying project funding is always important and and it's always important to have a sense of that from day one, like what is the scale of the type of project that we'll be working on here is this a project that doesn't have the money to move curb lines and affect drainage or is this a project that is going to fully reconstruct this street and we have a a blank canvas to work with and those will be very different costs for construction so knowing that going in is an important thing to consider being able to inform clients based on the type of project that they're working on, what funding opportunities they may have at their disposal is also helpful. So this is something we've, we've done in the past where we help an agency or a client, whether it's a, a town or a city, to prepare a grant application based on a concept plan that we've developed and based on a a rough engineering estimate a very high level planning estimate of how much this would cost and be able to help them to say well you can get this stormwater grant to cover this element of your project and you can get this state bikeways grant to help cover this element of the bike lane construction and sort of Cobble together different funding sources, and you know, typically there's also some sort of local match that they're going to have to contribute money out of out of their supply as well. But helping them to see where there are opportunities to get the money, to see this vision through to the end, is an important part of helping a, a client along with a with a project. And that's not always necessary. I mean, when I'm working on a project for a state DOT, those projects are usually already fully funded, whether it's from the state's pool of money or because they've got some federal funding. So securing the funding isn't always a component of the project, but understanding how much funding is available and allowing that to help govern some of your design decisions is important to understand from from day one. And then once you get the grant funding, then there's going to be the whole element of administering that grant funding, which requires documentation that the money was used in the appropriate manner. And so that's often another area where I would say, particularly smaller towns or cities, often need a little bit more help, where like a larger city is really a well-oiled machine at cobbling funding together and knowing where to get different funding sources and all the documentation that they need to go through, whereas some smaller communities may have never pursued grant funding because they didn't even realize that it, there there were all of these opportunities out there. So once you've pointed them to those dollars, you need to also help them to make sure that they're documenting everything properly so that, that they'll actually get that funding from whoever's supplying it.
0: Right. It's, it's amazing how many steps go into a project to start with, especially for bike ped, and then the whole level of intricacies that go into the grant and the type of funding that's available for, for those projects because it is bike ped oriented. hmm So, in addition to working on those grant applications there's also government entities that you have to work with for design approval can you give a brief overview of what that would entail
1: yes and agency approvals will vary from project to project based on the overall complexity and sort of how much is being disturbed and changed so a very minimal project may just be getting the sign off from the city's streets department or whoever owns the street whether it's the dot or a county or something like that if really all you're doing is making minimal changes to those streets you're not doing lots of physical construction it's usually just um, fairly simple approvals fairly simple in the grand scheme of things Other projects where you're doing more physical construction have multiple layers of approvals and different approvals along the way. So you will need an approval at the 30% level to advance it to the 60% level, to the 90% level, to the 100% level, and that's just from one agency. Then oftentimes there are environmental permits or clearances that need to be Uh, obtained. And that's also very context-based. So there's a whole formal federal process for getting environmental approval, depending on what you're affecting. So a project that's along a property that has historic designation or something like that has many more hurdles to jump through than a project that does not. And even understanding all of those permits is a challenge, which is why there are people or firms that specialize purely in things like environmental clearances, because it can be quite a challenge. And it's important to rely on those people, honestly, because they've done it so many times that they know all the potential hurdles along the way and can help to make sure that you're thinking ahead and documenting what you need to document and getting all the information that you need to ensure that that's not going to be the thing that hangs your project up. Right. There's Having also there's also often like stormwater approvals when when you're changing the amount of pavement that's out there, that's going to affect how water flows, and that's going to be a whole permitting process. So every little thing that you touch can potentially be some sort of approval and you just need to be aware of that. In addition to all the other agency coordination that needs to happen, like utilities or railroads or you know whatever else is in a street, often need some sort of sign off or approval.
0: I feel like that could be a small handbook in itself. Just, hey, here are all the agencies and grants and all these other things that you might need to think of with regard to your bike pet project, like don't forget all of these, and a little check mark for each one that you could think about. I'm sure it'd be a very long list.
1: <laughs> it would be a, a multi-volume book. <laughs> the, the other thing I wanted to mention about funding is, oftentimes, uh, a big component of our smaller projects is setting them up for a much larger project in the future so most of our sort of rapid implementation type projects or low cost retrofit type projects those projects are intended to be low cost to serve as sort of a proof of concept that this design will work so that once it's built You get more people out there biking and walking and the space starts to change. And then it's much easier to justify pursuing funding for something that's much more permanent or substantive or higher quality materials, those sorts of things. So while it's great when you can have the opportunity to just start from day one on a project that's going to completely reconstruct the street, those opportunities tend to be few and far between and that more often than not we're taking incremental steps to get to an ultimate vision potentially many years down the road and that by taking those incremental steps it will set agencies up to justify pursuing larger and larger funding sources to see that project through.
0: That's a great explanation of that process because you are so right there are some projects that just take so long to get implemented and get through the funding and or the right of way acquisition and i know we are going on one project here in st louis area that's going on three years and from the time we started design granted and they've added in a bike path on one whole side of the entire mile long corridor through this area and all that right-of-way acquisition just adds more time eventually people will see the benefits of that but when they've seen the design because of the charrettes and the public meetings you know in 2019 and then they don't start seeing construction happening for another year or two it's amazing how how quickly they forget that those what's coming and how long that process will take.
1: Mm-hmm. And I guess the flip side to that is those projects where you have the opportunity to completely reconstruct the street. Those are once in a generation opportunities. the The project that jumps into my mind is our Jackson Street project in St. Paul, Minnesota. So that was a corridor where all the utilities under the the street had reached the end of their design life so the entire street needed to be ripped up and it would be super easy for each of those utility companies to just go in replace them and everything gets put back the way it is but that means that you're going to wait another 50 years before you can re-envision what that corridor or that street will look like and so when those opportunities do present themselves that's when you really have to grab the bull by the horns and help to reimagine what that space could look like because it's going to be like that for a really long time and there's going to be much less opportunity to make those sort of incremental changes that i talked about before so that's why it's really important to understand where you are in the project development process and what the opportunities are and see that from day one and really leverage the opportunities when you can because that, that's just the way it's going to be for a really, really long time.
0: Absolutely, yeah. It's a great idea to push, push design when you get those projects. All right, moving on away from project uh, project stages specifically, are there any elements of design that you are seeing that might be trending for bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure, like separated bike lanes or shared use paths or anything that you think might be up and coming for people to think about when they're designing?
1: So... Definitely separated bike lanes are the new facility type to better accommodate bicyclists. And I think that particularly in urban areas, they provide just fantastic promise for making a community more comfortable for people to consider biking that in in, in an urban type environment, even when everything you're trying to get to is super close, that the fear of vehicles and conflicts is a major deterrent to people not wanting to bike and instead doing something else. And so separated bike lanes are definitely that thing. And they're certainly tried and true. They've been in the, the Netherlands and Denmark for many, many decades now and are extremely successful at convincing people that it it's a good way to get uh, around i think the the biggest shift or trend has somewhat less to do with the infrastructure itself and more to do with thinking about who we're designing for so in the past we may have been designing for quote a bicyclist but now we're thinking let's design for an interested but concerned bicyclist, or let's design for people of all ages and abilities. And that is a very different approach than just designing for a physical bicycle and assuming that that bicyclist would be okay riding with traffic sometimes and that they're, you know, Willing to mix in with a right turner when you drop the right turn lane at an intersection, and recognizing that when you make design decisions like that, that means that those people who are not comfortable riding with traffic are going to say, Well, I can't ride my bike because I'm deathly afraid of that intersection. And all you need is one dangerous intersection or challenging intersection along your potential route. To dissuade you from wanting to do it so it's that change in focus for who we're designing for and then the facility types themselves come out of that so a shared street uh, a bike boulevard for example is perfectly comfortable for somebody who is not that comfortable biking with traffic so long as the bike boulevard is designed so that there is not that much vehicular traffic on that street. And when there is vehicular traffic, it's moving slowly so that those inherent conflicts that will happen between the bicyclist and the the motorist are done at a speed and at such a minimal frequency that it's still comfortable to bike there. I actually see some of the greatest promise in bike boulevards and that that's how we're going to be able to easily connect neighborhoods and that the separated bike lanes themselves are going to be a great resource on the more challenging streets where we have higher volumes of traffic. Um, And that when we're providing those types of facilities that we need to be very diligent about how they're designed so that we're managing conflicts and thinking about how is the person that's actually riding in that space how are they going to feel when they're trying to get through this particular intersection and if it's going to be really stressful it's going to be the same problem we've had all along
0: you have so many great points that you're saying and i'm just sitting here like nodding like man for an engineer, he's got some great points. These are all things that we should be doing every single day. I'm like, yes, so excited about it. <laughs> I feel like i have to def- you talk and tell me all these things for hours.
1: <laughs> it's definitely things that we should be doing every single day. I think the challenge is the type of work I get to do every day is the type of work that most engineers rarely work on. And... Therefore, they're not constantly exposed to the things they need to be exposed to to make informed decisions. And I think that's that's some of the purpose behind the guidance that we're writing for the new Ashdale Bike Guide. I think that that's the whole purpose behind all of NACDO's guidance, that they're spelling it out so that an engineer can quickly look at different design details and different graphics and understand how something might apply to their project. But unless you're doing it with some regularity, you're probably not thinking through everything that you need to.
0: Right. When is there an, an anticipated date when that Toe bike guide will be coming out? Or is it still in the, the working stages?
1: I believe it was supposed to be the 2018 Ashto Bike Guide. So it is still not ready for publication. We are actively moving it through the various committees and review processes that it needs to go through. But because it includes a lot of these substantive changes like separated bike lanes and treatments that have never been in a previous Ashto Bike Guide, it has just taken a lot more review and response to comments and making revisions to content so that we're able to address the concerns of the different agencies and the different uh, committees and people that are reviewing it, that we're able to appropriately respond to their questions and concerns. And you know, my, my hope is that by going through this very detailed review process, that once the guide is on the street, it will be easy for people to apply to their projects because it's been thought through by all of these committees. In the same vein, we've been using this draft guide in our office every single day for all of our projects, so we're also putting it through its paces as well, and, you know, I've written a lot of content for it, and I'm still finding things that when I read it for a project, I think maybe I should rephrase this, because it will be more clear to somebody that's not used to working on a project like this. So while, while it's, gotta
0: be the guinea pig, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. While, while it's painful that it is taking this long, I think in the end, we will end up with a guide that will hold up to the, the test of time so we we previously worked on the 2012 ashto bike guide and you know in even in 2012 communities were starting to think about and some were implementing separated bike lanes but it just was not viable to include it in that version of the guide the the agency was not ready to include something that was still being frankly, tested in the U.S. So now that it's being built and designers are looking for that guidance, it's going to be really helpful for people that are trying to understand the design decisions and trade-offs that go along with different design decisions for a, a separated bike lane configuration.
0: And how does this bike guide interact with ProAg? Is there any type of interaction with the public right-of-way accessibility guidelines?
1: Yes. So. The the Ashto bike guide needs to comply with existing ADA guidance. And so right up front, it says that any any bike facility needs to ensure that accessibility is factored into those design decisions. So PROAG is really interesting because it's not actually adopted. And yet most state agencies have adopted it because it's the current state of the practice. It's the best information we have. So whether it's been adopted or not, we know that if we implement the guidance from ProAg, that we're better accommodating people with disabilities. So the bike guide touches on that as well and provides some, I guess, new guidance for the U.S., or at least fairly new guidance for the U.S. on the potential use of other treatments like directional indicator strips so the federal highway accessible shared street guide or fhwa accessible shared street guide that was the first u.s guide that i'm aware of that included any guidance on the use of a directional or tactile bar type indicator strip which if you've traveled abroad you'll find they have those in train stations and airports and you know they're the linear strips that people need to get from one decision point to the next and in the us we simply don't have that type of guidance all we have is the dots and if you liken it to morris code you can't have a whole language with just dots but you can have a whole language with dashes and dots and help people through those two communication tools, better navigate a space. So while we we can't say explicitly in the Ashto Bike Guide that go ahead and use directional indicator strips and everything will be fine for as long as the life of your project, um, we are providing recommendations in certain circumstances where you could consider that as a treatment, as sort of a a last resort. So I tend to find that accessibility drives a lot of decisions in the street environment and and rightfully so, but it requires really thoughtful decision-making when it comes to a treatment like a separated bike lane. How are you ensuring that people can get across that to cross a street or access a bus stop or access a parking space? So the AstroBike Guide addresses all of those things.
0: Absolutely. Just a few more pieces to the puzzle, right?
1: (laughs) Just more information to lock away in your head to apply on all of your projects.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no no big deal. Just add five more things. (laughs) All right. Well, I really appreciate all of your time. I think my last question here is, if people are interested in attending a conference or learning more about bike path infrastructure, APBP, is there a, po- a conference or program that you think that they should look into?
1: Sure. I mean, we're in a challenging time right now that most conferences are not occurring or moving to a virtual forum, so. Um, I think everybody is looking for opportunities to really improve their knowledge base and get their professional development hours, et cetera. Um, So the the APBP conference, which is held every two years, is a really great conference for um, specifically focusing on walking and biking and has a really great it serves as a really great resource for all of our members and attendees. The Walk By Places conference has a lot of those same themes, but also includes placemaking and a, a major focus on placemaking. And those conferences tend to run the opposite years of the APBP conferences. So it works out really well. Those tend to be the two bike, ped, and space conferences that I'm most familiar with, and in addition to those, APVP has a monthly webinar, which is a great way of getting your you know, monthly conference or monthly professional development training in, and um, also prevents great opportunities for people to present their projects and things that they're working on, so... Keeping with the theme of what APBP's purpose is, it's you know this idea sharing and making sure that when we see great projects or great ideas being developed, let's make sure that that information is getting out to our our members and then providing the forum for them to continue discussing it.
0: Perfect, well, thank you. I'll make sure to include links to all of those items in the show notes on the website. Are there any other links or resources that you want to make sure to highlight and that I can include in the website?
1: Oh my God, there's got to be a bazillion of them. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I
0: bet it's hard. You can always just send me a list and I can add a whole bunch.
1: Yeah, I mean, NACTO has great resources. There's tons of FHWA resources that I turn to almost daily, particularly FHWA's experimental treatments and interim approvals so those are sort of like fhwa's interpretation of the cutting edge treatments that people can start to use but yeah i can sort of compile a couple links that i frequent for you to include in the show notes
0: that would be awesome thank you so much and with that I'll wrap up the podcast's first crossover episode. As mentioned in the discussion with Jeremy, there are links in the show notes to a number of different resources, including APBP itself and the Walk Bike Places conference. If you have any questions or comments, please visit everythingbutthebuilding.com and leave a message. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or send an email at ebtvpodcast at gmail.com Cover art for the podcast was created by at James E. Butler and music for the podcast was created by Adam Jekinskis and Dan Ross.